This is a Crestview Bible Podcast. For more information, visit crestviewhutch.org. Well, it was a social media phenomenon before it became a game show on Netflix of all places. And what is it? The floor is lava. So the premise is pretty simple. You pretend that the floor is turned into lava and then you have to navigate around a room or life accordingly. So the social media trend was someone would yell out, the floor is lava, and then you'd jump onto something like, oh, you know, and just like jump onto something so that you aren't stepping into lava and drowning or whatever. Um, The game show has uh, fake lava looking water that gives the illusion of actual lava. And the simple challenge is that you would have to act differently if lava was on the ground, which of course you would, right? Um, Not to mention like if you're jumping on a chair, would that just not be consumed by lava? But that's a whole nother thing, right? So acting differently is part of what happens when we step into lava and acting differently is part of what happens when it comes to suffering. So I've been one of the first people on site at a suicide and the scene is overwhelming. So ordinary pastoral sensibilities don't work in those moments. So what do you say? What do you do? You have to act differently. That's part of what happens in all kinds of moments. So we've all experienced that to some degree. When you get the call that the diagnosis isn't what you expected or that a loved one has unexpectedly passed away or you're just numb emotionally because you've been sitting in some sort of overwhelming circumstance, you can't act as if nothing is wrong because we're all affected. It affects us, we have to act differently. People can tell that you're going through something. So we return to the book of Job this morning. We've been making our way through this book. We introduced our themes of suffering the church in Jesus. And we've dug into chapters to see exactly what happened to Job. And we did all that to introduce the book. And then last week we continued to plod uh, as Luke led us through Job chapter three and the lament that, that Job gives there. And so I hope you're getting part of what this book demands, that suffering causes us to act differently. We can't just proceed like nothing's happening in life. It causes us to act differently. So today we're gonna fast forward to another dark moment for Job as he responds to Bildad. So I told some friends of mine that are pastors that I'm preaching through Job and they said, well, you know, you got one of the easiest jokes in the Bible that what is the shortest person in the Bible? And it's Bildad the Shuhite. So I was like, I don't think I'm gonna use that. And here I am. Here I am grasping for low hanging fruit. Bildad the Shuhite. Anyway, um, in this chapter, Job chapter nine, uh, Job is responding to Bildad. There had been a back and forth between Eliphaz and Joab in in chapters four through seven, so kind of to get you up to speed. They were wondering, is it even possible for someone to be right with God? And in chapter eight, Bildad raises additional questions related to that. Does God, and here's what he says, like in verse three of chapter eight, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he's delivered them into the hand of of their transgression. If you'll seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you're pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. In other words, like, get your act together and God will get his act together and fix this. 
That's what Bildad is saying. After all, he says, behold, God will not reject a blameless man nor take the hand of evildoers. And Bildad's point is that Job must have done something wrong or someone in his family did, which is why God sent the suffering. In suffering though, we're gonna act differently. For Job, some thoughts emerge and the answers aren't quickly found. Uh, we're, we're lingering through these lengthy back and forths in this book in the coming weeks to know that there is some wisdom when we try to make sense of what God is doing in suffering. Often um, when we're in suffering, we're trying to get out of that as quickly as possible. So um, we don't wanna have to deal with, we don't wanna have to deal with emotions that we're uncomfortable dealing with. So we quickly get out of them as quickly as possible. So just like I did, I felt the room was very tense. So I just grabbed a joke that I had because I didn't want you thinking about suicide or heavy thoughts, right? We do that all the time. We, we feel that there's something heavy going on and so we'll change the subject or do something. Uh, that was the case for me. I'm trying to keep about doing work and I'm, in my heart I'm grieving the loss of a friend and I'm not grieving properly. I'm not taking time to consider that. I'm quickly making jokes or quickly serving the family or quickly being anxious about all kinds of things and it's distracting me from what I need to be doing. Suffering makes us act differently. And um, we try to get out of that discomfort as quickly as possible because it's awkward. And we have the book of Job standing as a consideration for us to slow down, to slow down. I mean, 42 chapters back and forth. I mean, chapters three to 39 or 40, you know, it's just slowing down. There's all this back and forth between these people and it's causing us to slow down. Now, I'm not sure what you may be going through today or what questions you might have about suffering, but I do want this sermon to encourage you. We're gonna go with Job into the depths of assigning some sense to what's happened to him. And I think we're gonna get some clues that are gonna help us in this passage. And further, I hope that there's spiritual encouragements for us. So we're just not gonna get clues for helping us facing suffering in general. I think there's spiritual encouragement here for us as well. So we're gonna see three problems, and I want you to think about problems as being in air quotes. I can't remember if those are in your notes or not, but air quotes are those things that are around the problems. They're quote problems. Three problems that often emerge in suffering. So let's read Job chapter nine and see what, the, uh, see what Job has to say about, you should have done something right, you can fix this. Maybe if you're blameless, God will fix this. Here's what Job answers. Beginning in verse one, here's what he answers and says, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not, or he who overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger beneath him 
bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He'll not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I'm in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It's all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hands of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it's not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say I'll forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So three problems, problems that often emerge in suffering. And the first problem that often emerges in suffering is that God does as he pleases. God does as he pleases. We see this in these opening verses, the first 12 verses. Now this first problem isn't a problem for God. God has the right to do whatever he pleases. So I'm using air quotes to set this off. God is right and just to do whatever he wants. That's what makes him God. And this is where Job's answer to Bildad begins. He's asking how a man can be right with God, but on the other hand, Job knows what's out of bounds for him to question. If God was the opposing lawyer in a court case, you couldn't mount an argument that could win against the God of the universe. And there's a litany of actions that, of, that are found uh, in God, starting in verse four. Did you see all those as I read them? That he's wise in heart, he's mighty in strength. Um, on Sports Center, they used to say this you can't stop him, you can't hope to contain him. You know, he's like Steph shooting threes, or I don't, basketball imagery is not working for you today. Um, you know, we just had two, three, 23, Michael Jordan Day. You know, um, you can't stop him, you can only hope to contain him. Um, this is how God is. God's that way in the universe, He can't be stopped. Anything He intends to do, He's over mountains. He's controlling earthquakes. He commands the sun. He commands the stars. He commands the heavens. He commands the seas. He puts stars in the sky. And then Job concludes all that in verses 11 and 12 by inviting us, look, God's so great, he could pass us by. And Job says, I wouldn't even know it, or I move, right? I couldn't move, or I couldn't tell. I'd be speechless. I wouldn't know if it was him or not. He, he can't be changed, you can't question God um, by asking, what are you doing and expect him to change? 
So this reality is, is part of the big wrestling of the book of Job, right? In suffering, God can do whatever he wants. This is what we're wrestling with. It's, it's bewildering. Why this though? Why are you doing this, God? We don't understand that. And yet for those of us who know him, we know that he's perfectly right and just to do whatever he wants. So on one level, it's a problem, and on another level, it's not a problem. On one level, why am I facing all this suffering? And on the other hand, it's, but God, you're just to do whatever you think is best. You're right to do that. That's the problem of God doing whatever he wants, that we're caught in the quagmire of that. So it just remi- this reminds us a lot. This chapter nine to me sounds a lot like God's answer to Job at the end of the book, right? where he reminds Job how sovereign he is. Job knows that God is sovereign, but because he knows this, there's questions. Like, can we discern the character of God from his actions? Can we figure out what he's up to based on what he's done? Can we get to a reason as to why he's doing that? And recognizing that suffering makes us all act differently, can we trust our thoughts and know that we're getting God right? That's the challenge. So suffering, it provokes these kinds of questions. God's sovereignty or his bigness or his being in chargeness is a comfort and a difficulty. It's a comfort for many of us because we know him. We know he's good. We know he has loving kindness. We know he's up to something and we might not, like, like Spurgeon said, we might not be able to trace his hand, but we can trust his heart we know exactly what he's doing and it's for our good. And yet it's bewildering. Why is he choosing to do this? What more do I need to learn? What, what's your design here? And that's where Job's caught. We know that God's good. We know that God doesn't act willy-nilly. We know he doesn't fly off the handle. We know he doesn't act without purpose. So God's being in control is gonna boggle our mind in the midst of suffering. That we know He's in control, and yet, God, what are you doing? Why? Why now? Why this timetable? Why this length? What, what are you doing? What's your wise design here? So it's a problem, and it's a comfort. Um, God doing whatever he wants is gonna be a great comfort someday when the dust settles. It's gonna be praise to him. I think if we, as we look at the canvas of all that God's done over our lives, Um, the canvas is gonna pop because there's dark elements on that canvas that are gonna make the moments of light stand out. We know that's the end of the story. We know that's what God's up to, but in the moment, it is sure bewildering. That's the first problem we're navigating here. The first problem that often emerges in suffering is that God does as he pleases. He's sovereign. He's big. He can do whatever he wants. And yet here we are caught, just like Job in these first 12 verses. Well, secondly, we get another problem. And that is uh, in verses 13 through 24. We can reach wrong conclusions about what he's doing. So we can reach wrong conclusions about what he's doing. So I draw attention and drop the spotlight here in verses 13 through 24, because at the end of Job, Job's gonna repent Um, And God's not gonna say, oh, you didn't have to do that, but thanks for humoring me. Uh, 
No, it's gonna be a legitimate repentance that Job, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his processing this, is getting some things wrong. And um, he's gonna repent of that later in the book. And I think this is one of those examples here in these middle verses, verses 13 through 24. So we raise some daunting questions in light of God's actions in that first point. And what we learn in this middle section is that this chapter of this chapter is that sometimes our conclusions about what God's doing are wrong. We just reached the wrong conclusion. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should take an attitude of self-righteousness towards Job, okay? So I'm not suggesting that um, because we have an advantage that Job doesn't. We were there for chapters one and two. Um, we saw what God was up to. Like we saw what was taking place in heaven that Satan was coming and saying, hey, how about I check out your, and you know, Satan's reporting there and then God's saying, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's the guy who gets it in all the earth. And Satan's like, well, yeah, but you know, you got a hedge around him, you know, nobody can touch him. And God's like, okay, you can, you know, allow some things to come his way. And so then Job passes the test and then that whole, whole thing happened again. So. I want us to be very careful in our attitude towards Job. We know that as readers of the book of Job. Job doesn't. He doesn't know what happened in heaven. He doesn't know what took place there. We do. So we know why, was, we know why Job was given a bitter pill to swallow. Now, we have a pretty good sense, probably, of what God might be after, even though it's still quite bewildering to us. But it's a good reminder for us in this middle section that we don't know the entire story and that our processing of suffering might be fallible when it comes our way. So suffering is gonna come our way and we're gonna immediately think, well, I know what God's up to here. Maybe, just be careful. You don't know the end. You don't know entirely what God's up to because you're not God. Um, so in verses 13 and following, Job continues to think about God's actions and he continues telling us, that God's anger is dispensed as he chooses. So he tells us that answering God is complex because we don't know what he's doing. If somehow we achieved an audience with him, how would we know that God's listening to us? Right, that's what Job's asking here in verse, uh, oh. yeah, in verse 16, if I summoned him and he answered me, I wouldn't believe that he was listening to my voice. Right? So let's suppose I get an audience with God and we're going to have coffee at Starbucks. You know, how would I know that he's listening to me? So like in chapters one and two, um, God crushed Job with a tempest, right? So that's what the next verse says. He crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. So that's what happened in chapters one and two. He crushed God crushed him with a tempest and wounded him. But Job thinks this is without cause. And we know, no, Job, there's a cause. You don't know that, but there's a cause. In verse 18, he's saying that God is responsible for the bitterness he faces. Okay, so I think he's misguided there too in verse 18. He'll not let me get my breath and he fills me with bitterness. I don't think God is filling Job with bitterness. That's Job's reaction to the circumstances. Job's saying, God is mighty and just, so what can we do? So though Job is in the right and blameless, his own words aren't helpful according to verse 20. 
Though I am right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, he would prove me perverse. So he loathes his life and doesn't regard himself. So he's lost the proper view of himself. And in verses 22 to 24, they showcase this even more, that God is destroying both the blameless and the wicked and mocking the calamity of the innocent. So do you see that in verse uh, 23? He mocks the calamity of the innocent. It's, a, it's like God's laughing at us at his expense. He's done all these things and he's laughing at us. In other words, he's calling into question God's care. And lest we should lose sight of the point, Job is saying that this is all God. That's how he ends in verse 24. Um, the earth is given to the hand of the wicked. He covers it with the face of the judges. If it's not God, who then is it? It has to be him. He's the one calling the shots here. So he's stuck in an injustice, Job is. And he doesn't know what else to conclude but this. That this is all God's doing. That's why I'm bitter. This is all God's doing. That's why I'm, he's laughing at me. Uh, one writer says, Job knows something is terribly wrong about saying God actively brings injustice on the earth. So he knows that. He knows he can't accuse God of injustice. But if, but if he is to hold on to the sovereignty of God, he can't see what other conclusion he can reach. Who else can act sovereignly on earth? It's a terrible thing that Job says, but we can see why he says it. He's caught in the quagmire here. So what do we do with this? You know, I can feel how heavy this is, even in this room. What do we do with this? When we're in the midst of suffering, or we're sitting with someone in suffering and they're getting it quite wrong, what do we do in that moment? Well, I think on one level, this is a call for us to keep listening. Keep listening. So if you're found with someone making mistakes and using words that aren't right, based on what you know, all of these chapters in Job are causing us, are inviting us to have more of a listening ear than being quick to correct. Okay, so remember, we're thinking about suffering the church and Jesus, and I think our application in the church, let's be patient with people in their suffering. That's what James told us, right, in James 5. As an example of patience in the midst of suffering, remember Job. And I think in the church, we, we begin to enter into this discomfort with someone. They say something wrong and we're quick to, oh, well, I know a scripture that proves that that's not right. Um, so I need to fix them in the moment. And I'm saying, might the book of Job just cause you to be a little more patient with them in the midst of suffering? Because God's not gonna answer to chapter 40. We're just in chapter nine, right? We, we got a lot of work to do in this book. So let's be long-suffering. Oh, it's so hard to be that, right? But love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long-suffering. And this is the hard part for us when we're walking with someone through suffering. Yes, God's word does correct. Yes, God's word does equip us for every good work. God's word also has to be wielded skillfully. And coming to someone in the midst of suffering and saying, I know what's going on here. You're getting it quite wrong. Here's what the scriptures say. So see you tomorrow. Keep struggling. I don't think that's very kind. I don't think that's what God's inviting us to. 
Now, I understand also that everybody in this room is wired differently. So there are people in this room with mercy gifts that are like ready to stand up and scream hallelujah at what I'm saying right now. And there are people in this room who are more the exhorters, maybe gifts of prophecy, ready to declare what the Lord has said. And you're like, well, hey, go on a second. Like, I don't think we should be compromising scripture when I'm listening to someone. And I get all that. And I'm just saying, the book of Job is causing us to hold this intention. The book of Job is inviting us to be patient, to keep listening. We are much too impatient and we are much too after a quick fix when we are given the privilege of being with someone who's suffering. We, we just wanna fix it quickly so that we don't have to deal with that anxiety in our hearts. Or is that just me? Like, I just, I'm sitting with someone and maybe if I just give them the scripture verse, then I can get out of this uncomfortable feeling that I feel and let them be, let them return to their ash heap and I can go back to Pizza Hut, you know, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's the tension we're found in, right? And so we wanna, I'm saying this book, this, this section is just inviting us to linger there. What if you were just a, what if you embraced that discomfort just a touch more and lingered with that person just a bit longer? Um, we tend to not allow people to process their sufferings very well. And I think at the end of the day, we probably end up being like Job's three friends who are quick to get in an argument with Job who's suffering. Now, granted, they sat for seven days and didn't say anything. So they treated him like he was dead for seven days, right? Uh, but now that they're ready to speak, it's almost like, hey, we're gonna argue about this. We know all you've been through, but I'm gonna argue with you. I'm gonna take you to task on this. You're quite wrong. And I'm just saying, I don't, I think even the end of the book of Job would say, that's probably not the right path with someone who's suffering. And so, Yes, this means that you're gonna to have to relate to people, that you're gonna to have to get to know them. Because I know what some of us are thinking, like, well, when's the rule? Like, when do I get to just tell them what the truth is? I don't quite know. I'm, thinking that, I'm just thinking the scriptures are inviting us to be more patient than we tend to be. They're tending, the scriptures are inviting us to be more listening than we tend to be to those who are suffering. Like Job, we should expect people to reach wrong conclusions about what God is doing. And this includes people who are outside suffering like us. When we're invited to walk alongside someone, God's ways are higher than our ways and they're very complex. So let's be patient. This is another problem that emerges in suffering. We can reach the wrong conclusions about what God's doing. So the sufferer can reach the wrong conclusions and I would imagine that us who are coming alongside the sufferer can reach the wrong conclusions. Therefore, we should be patient. You should pump the brakes. You should be listening to the spirit. And is this the right time to apply the word? Or is this the time to listen and let them get some stuff wrong, but be with them? I'm still with you in the midst of this, knowing that they're quite wrong. I mean, that's the bewildering part that some of us have to wrestle with. So that's the second tension or the second problem. Third, this passage ends in a flurry because this is where we all get to. Um, third and finally, another problem that often emerges in suffering is we try to find an escape. We try to find an escape. So this is uh, beginning in verse 25. Um, a lot of writers believe that verses 25 through 35 are a unique poem in the Hebrew language. 
So I know you're not coming here today for a Hebrew poetry lesson. And I'm sure some of you ladies are thinking, I didn't shave my legs for that. I, I know that's for sure. I didn't come for a Hebrew poetry lesson, you know. But these verses kind of hang together and they're talking about Job trying to get a way of escape. We're trying to find a way of escape. And look at how he begins in verse 25. My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, they see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on its prey. So Job is feeling the brevity of life. He's gone through the ringer and his days are running faster than Usain Bolt. You know, they're coming like an eagle swooping on prey. That's not something that takes a long time. The eagle's just like, boom, or like a missile blowing up a balloon over the Atlantic. Um, you know, it's just happening quick. It's not lingering out there for days. Like, it, what? anyway, um, Job's suffering is, it's quick, right? It's happening so fast. He, his days are quickly fleeing and it's not good. They're like reed boats on the water that are just made to go quick across the water or like a eagle swooping on a prey. It's ending quickly. That's what he feels in his soul. And so Job offers some escapes. Look at verse 27. He could put on a happy face. If I say, I'll just forget my complaint and put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of my suffering for I know you won't hold me innocent. I'll be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? So one escape is just forget my issues. Replace the sad face with a happy one. But this cover-up doesn't address the real issue that Job is guilty before God and is gonna be condemned. He doesn't have a reason to boast before God. He must resign to the fact that God is God and he isn't. He's back to the same dilemma. Putting on the happy face doesn't change anything. That's one escape. He could claim and try to clean himself up. Look at verse 30. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. So he could wash so that he's white like snow or he could cleanse his hands, but that's not gonna change things before God. He's still gonna be stuck in the quagmire of his suffering. It doesn't take him out of that. He is in the pit. He is sitting in ashes. He is grieving. So just because he can wash himself up outwardly doesn't change anything. I mean, it's probably good for him to shower, right? It's probably good for you to shower. Don't use this to say, well, you know, Job didn't shower. I don't have to shower. No, he's just saying that that isn't gonna fix it. There's still hard issues that have to be addressed, right? We try to clean ourselves up. But it's this last point that Job expresses a longing for a mediator. Look at this in verse 32. For God's not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let us take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I could speak of him without fear, for I'm not so in myself. So in other words, Job is saying again, I'm not like God. I have a huge problem that there's no mediator between God and me. There's no umpire, there's no judge, there's no arbiter between me and man. But if Job had a mediator, he's longing for this. Remember, this is probably written um, just very early in the Old Testament. If I had some sort of mediator that could, I could then speak to God without fear. Um, but he doesn't have this comfort in himself. And it's this last longing that is a great help to us. Because as New Testament believers, we do have a mediator, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yes, he was entirely God. So he had all of God's interests in himself and he was fully man. He had all of our interests in himself and he came and walked in our shoes so that we could appeal to him 
so that we would have someone who has been where we have been without sin. He's the mediator, according to uh, Hebrews 9.15, of a new covenant so that we can inherit all the promises of eternal life. And God and Job has brought us at the end here to this place of hope. As Job's longing for escape, he's bringing us to a place of hope to say, look, if only there was a mediator who could help me. And we're saying, oh, you got a mediator. We have a mediator, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We can rest in him. We have a Lord that we can trust. This security doesn't mean that suffering is easy. It doesn't mean that it's more understandable, but we have the confidence in the moment that we are not alone. We have a mediator with us who will be with us through the suffering. And so in conclusion, we've seen these three problems that often emerge in suffering that God does as he pleases. We can reach the wrong conclusions and we try to find an escape. Unexplained suffering creates a massive problem for us, but Job longs for a mediator so God's interests and our interests can be worked through. And we know that Jesus has come. We know that he's come. As a man, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He was sinless. He can represent our stakes before God because he was a fully man. He was fully human just like us. He's also fully God, he's perfection. He knows what it takes to satisfy a holy God. And in Jesus, what appeared to be unjust, the killing of God's only son actually emerges as a way of salvation for any who will trust in him. So what seems like unexplained suffering in the case of the death of the son of God is actually our rescue. God's turning the table on everything that the world would think to say, here's hope for my people. So will you trust that today? Will you find an escape from all that you're travailing with and put your confidence in Jesus and trust him? Will you believe? You might say, but you don't know what I've been through. Jesus does. Will you trust him? Will you lean into him? And I think there's so many encouragements as we look back on this chapter. I mean, rest in God's sovereignty. Um, God's in control. And in God being in control, he sent his son as a mediator for you. So the conclusions that we reach about what God's doing, they're often gonna be wrong. We're not God. Like Job, we may feel that, we, that there aren't satisfactory answers. And even those of us who have grown up in church and know all the answers, they're not satisfying in the moment. So I think there's, so we're looking to Jesus. We're, um, we're thinking about what does this mean? How do I make sense of this? And then we have this huge thing that Jesus has sent. Um, Jesus has been sent and he suffered. So, I mean, it's not just that we have a mediator that can represent our interests. We have a mediator who has gone through suffering. We have a mediator that has faced rejection from his closest friends. We have a mediator who has been agonizing all by himself in a garden, who has been overwhelmed with so much anxiety that he's sweating drops of blood, that went through physical suffering that we can't imagine. So that's our mediator. I mean, look at, look at him. Look at him in the midst of your suffering. And then as caregivers, let's be patient with those in suffering. Uh, I just wanna tell you, you don't have to fix it all in the moment. 
I know that's your heart. I know when you come alongside someone who's in suffering, you're just thinking, I just wanna be helpful in this moment. And maybe the most helpful thing you can do is just to let them get everything wrong. Let them just say it all wrong and just know that you're with them. And you're just holding out the hope of, man, there's a mediator. Jesus has suffered with us. I'm clinging to him and I don't have any good answers for you. Um, so if you're going through suffering, just continue to lament. That's what Job's doing here. He's lamenting. He's, he's pouring out his heart honestly before God. And he's even doing that with his friends. I mean, so his lament is not just, I mean, it's here and it's an answer to a friend and their misguided question. In my view, it's misguided. Um, but it's recorded here for us so that we can know that people are gonna lament and they're not gonna get it right. Um, Job can voice a lot to God and God's okay with that. You know, God's not stopping in chapter 10 and saying, now hang on a second, Job, that's about enough from you. I do know how to run the universe and let me just put you in your place. No, God's patient too. Uh, God's loving to him. So voice it to God, lament to God. Don't relent in bending God's ear. He wants to hear from you. You can speak to him without fear because you have a mediator. You're not like Job. <laughs> you have a mediator. So there's all kinds of problems that are gonna emerge in suffering. Let's step into these informed by our great God and savior Jesus so that we can know him in awe and wonder. We can help others know him and we can worship him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word and um, just, I mean, there's so much in this passage that just is bewildering stuff that probably years from now we'll still be scratching our head going, I don't quite know what Job meant by that. Um, so we, we know that there's things that are right, things that are wrong, we know you're in control, and yet we are absolutely sure that we have a mediator that there is one God and one mediator between us and you, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are so thankful to him. Where would we be without you? And so today in this room, any who need to run to that mediator, I pray that they would run and find him, find him satisfying. And um, for those who are going through it, um, would you give us patient hearts towards them? Would you allow them to be able to lament in their suffering and to look to the mediator uh, look to you, Jesus, and what you've done for them. That They're not alone. So they have an advocate. They have an empire. They have an arbiter that they can run to you and find help. So um, be near us as we worship, as we respond and consider all that you've said through your word today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.